Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. episode of really true fiction my name is luke mason and my name is david parker luke i have a question for you oh you have a question for me i had one for I you i have a but... question for you okay. yeah <laughs> <laughs> what would you do if you learned that the laws of physics were not a genuine part of reality and were just not constant mm. at all yeah i don't know i'd probably quit a lot of things <laughs> what like... would you quit just like caring about a lot of things. <laughs> That's kind of like um, if the laws of physics were chaotic or unstable or unlawful and were just uh, capricious, I would probably consider that like, I don't know, epistemological nihilism. <laughs> and and I'd honestly, I'd probably just go, well, actually, like, this is a weird question because... I know. I was wondering, would it really change that the much? The know. intellectual part of me says, yeah, I would totally change and wouldn't care. But like the experiential part of me, like wouldn't know the difference. So no. like all of my kind of like psychological and emotional and uh, like ethical obligations would feel the same. Right. And like you're not a <laughs> physicist, so it's not like your life's work is being ruined <laughs> or meaningless. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, would seem to me that as far as I could tell, it was stable, even if it wasn't. So like what would actually be the, like, this is, a, I mean, you started this episode on a completely different tangent. That is great. <laughs> but like, there's, um, my favorite podcast is called very bad wizards. And about maybe six months ago, they did an episode on a, on a Ted Chang short story. And I can't remember the title of the story, but basically the idea of it was that, um, God and the devil and angels and demons all exist and everyone knows that they exist. So it's like the existence of heaven and hell and God and the devil are kind of like how we would maybe think about, you know, airplanes exist or supersonic jets right. or they're helicopters. Like they're just around. And even if I don't see them, like they're, they're part of my ontological duh. Right. <laughs> right? right. And, and the kind of payoff of that story was like, nobody's life is actually any different knowing these things. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm have to look that one up. That people, people don't behave that different. And yeah, uh, the, the like the incentive structure, like basically, I mean, the, the psychological makeup of human beings being what it is, is that the ontological fact or not fact of these massive things existing or not don't actually change too much of what people's lives are like. Yeah, which is a little bit wild if you think about it. <laughs> well, that's actually something Christopher Hitchens talked about in his like counterfactuals with believers, where whether it be Christians or Muslims or Jews, especially, it was like, you're telling me if you thought Muhammad didn't exist or Allah didn't exist, you would stop caring about your family and you would 
not be interested in helping people le- worse off than you. And, right. you know, just the counterfactual is obviously the philosopher's tool, main tool, <laughs> right? So True, true, so that's, true. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I guess I can't, the honest answer that I could have given you at the beginning, but I like, you know, the sound uh, of you my like voice, I suppose, is uh, I don't actually know what to think about that. Right. Like I can't, I, I, I guess I, the question is posed to me in a universe that is stable. And so. Well, and maybe it's one of the most, in my opinion, unique uh, storytelling apparatuses I've ever come across. For sure. Cause it's like, well, you just die at any moment. If you're in a chaotic universe, like, yeah, yeah. how would you ever know? Like, it just like, honestly living in a chaotic universe would be like living in uh, I think it's like mission impossible three where they implant like explosive bugs up your nose and into your brain. And they could just go off whenever. And you have no idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and I mean like, and imagine not knowing when the sun's going to come up. Mm-hmm. It's just like, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It, might come up tomorrow it might come up in 50 years yeah that's a good question and it's certainly a lot better than the one i was going to ask you but i still feel like i want to now (laughs) okay well what were you gonna ask me (laughs) okay so david i was wondering because yes we're doing the book the three body problem but i was wondering if this title is a little bit different in different communities so i was wondering if in the polyamory community this book is known as the three body solution (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and honestly not being a part of the polyamory community i, I can't speak to this but, right now, but uh, what's your speculation I'm now also curious <laughs> what would be your guess uh well i mean framing it that way you could argue is the same thing because really that is what they're looking for is the solution <laughs> to the problem right sure. so <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe all you need is love. The three body solution is the is is how you solve the two body problem. Ah. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought that was funny. <laughs> so yeah, today we're doing the three body problem, a novel by this is going to be a theme in this episode. But yeah, we I don't apologize know how to pronounce to all of our listeners right now. His name I think is Sixin Liu. Something like yeah. that. C-I-X-I-N is the first name, and Liu, L-I-U. So uh, translated by Ken Liu. I don't know if they're related or not. And I think it was uh, published in 2005, this one. And this is the first novel in a trilogy, and it's a sci-fi trilogy. And this was um, a book you were interested in or or led me to. Yes, my friend Tom recommended it to me and i thought uh after reading it that it would be great for the podcast for a couple of reasons uh the first reason is we have not read a sino-centric novel yet sorry what centric uh chinese sino oh. is mm. another for the like that that's that area of the world civilization right. so we we haven't read uh one of those yet and also after reading it, I was just massively impressed by the Chinese cultural perspective on sci-fi that I'd never engaged with. And I thought it was one of the most creative series that I've ever read. And I I was just um, blown away by the quality of writing. It actually reminded me of 
like probably two of my favorite books of all time. We haven't done all of them, but like one is Silence, the Japanese novel uh, about the um, persecution of the Catholic Church and or the destruction of the Catholic Church essentially in Japan. And now this is up there. I I'm just I'm so impressed by how much more connected I feel to other ways of thinking after reading this book, to be honest, because I've always been a huge sci-fi fan and, and fa sci-fi and fantasy, but to get a totally new perspective on sci-fi and also just some good hard sci-fi, like hard science fiction, as opposed to maybe more airy fairy science fiction. I just really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I definitely was like a little bit elated by, thinking about that feeling of getting sci-fi or a, uh, a story about like aliens and intrigue and development and simulation theory even a little bit through a lens that's definitely not american right yeah this or, is not, not a western British. book no, yeah no and like you can tell that a little bit by the like the translation like i always just feel especially with like translations from asian languages to english they just they just lose something. I can just tell yeah. that the prose of this book is not nearly as kind of like basic or wooden in uh, Mandarin as it would have been in English through a translation, right. you know? I yeah. feel the same way when I when we watch like Japanese horror movies or Korean horror movies for the Nothing to Fear podcast, right? Like I'm just right. like, there's no way this is like the best feeling of the translation from whatever, right. you know? Yeah, um, and yet, and yet, it it speaks to the genius of the author that so much of what he's, I would assume, is trying to convey is conveyed to such a high degree. Yeah, and uh, I think I read somewhere too that there maybe, and maybe this is why these books are kind of in the Western mindset a bit more, is that they're making a TV show. I think I believe they're yeah, Netflix has the rights to this and right. they're developing it so. And so, yeah, this is the first novel in a trilogy, and I think eventually we'll cover the whole trilogy, but we're just covering the first book, The Three-Body Problem. Just before I give a plot rundown, which this one will definitely need because it's not, like, the most famous book we've ever done. No, no. I just want to give a big thank you to everyone who listens to this podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group. You can find us on all major podcasting apps um and we'd love to hear from you yeah absolutely. so yeah the three body problem is a novel set in a few different eras of chinese history it begins i think in 1967 i think yeah during the, the cultural revolution during the cultural revolution and there's a few scenes early in the book on some struggle sessions in the universities between a number of professors but predominantly like scientists and I don't know the red guards or whatever they were called I can't remember and so a lot of our main our main character one of the main characters father is is the kind of protagonist of that early part of the book and it's only like maybe 10 pages but it's setting the stage for like this tension culturally in China for this kind of thing and then we get another we get part of the story like ongoing at red base which is this Wenji lady and kind of revealing her story, which it turns out is she's like the first human in history to make contact with an alien civilization. Yeah, it turns out she's like one of the most significant, well, <laughs> 
in this universe the most significant arguably person yeah. to have ever lived because yeah, yeah, of the yeah. impact of her decisions yeah so even though all of this happens in a time frame well before the main thrust of the story the storytelling technique is that we kind of learn it um there's like parallel storytelling going on between um this era from like the 70s and 80s into the 90s and then the modern day which i can't even remember when the modern day is but it's like a little bit in the future from now i think or around now i, I can't quite remember yeah, it's very very uh contemporary yeah. based it's got like china's in a but but there's still i think it's a little bit earlier because there's so, still some antagonism between well i mean who knows what the future is going to hold so i but there there <laughs> yeah. definitely is tensions between the united states and china but they're you know they're being kind of washed away by the problem mm -hmm. that's being faced and then the kind of third and main thrust of the book certainly what gets kind of the most airtime is this modern day pseudo mystery kind of going on uh, of this main character, Wang, and he's a nanomaterials specialist, and he kind of is interacting with this detective, Dei Shi, who's like <laughs> the kind of blue-collar person of the book, as well as like different guards and different Chinese authorities and all these other scientists, and he's not quite sure why all this is happening. And embedded in that story is Wang finding a, a game, a simulation, through one of his colleagues that he starts to immerse himself in called the three body i guess it problem. has to be a bit in the future then because they've got a hot, better versions of virtual reality basically yeah like yeah, yeah. And stuff that it you reminded can, like... me very much i don't know have you read ready player one or seen the movie yeah it's, yeah i i've seen the movie i haven't read the book uh, yeah. i want to read the book it's but the yeah, uh yeah. it's it reminded me of the oasis a little bit from ready player one which is the, yeah the immersive it, it's what the metaverse is aspiring to be i suppose yeah. <laughs> it's kind of yes. like this you wear haptic suits. It's this um, immersive virtual reality that is very visceral. Like you feel like you're a part of it. This virtual reality simulation game called The Three-Body Problem, we learn as the book goes on, is a kind of like <laughs> a reimagining of what the world is like for this alien civilization that has been contacted in the past by Wenji. And I was maybe a little unclear, and maybe that's not a huge important part of the book because it's like a mechanical thing, but like who knew these things while they designed this game like how did how did what were the specs well the translarans they deliver this kind of information to the eot right right eto okay so there was just some sort of programmer in the eto that did this did we learn who that uh, is yes yeah that's the idea yeah okay yeah. okay sorry yeah. that makes sense and so we're like learning about <laughs> this like physics problem basically the three body problem of like how do you measure the gravity of three massive bodies so close to each other like these three stars are and um it turns out in reality that these three stars are the kind of alpha century area of stars which are actually three different stars very close together i think it's like alpha century b a b and proxima century and so there's this trisolaris civilization that has been contacted accidentally by wenji and the book kind of ends with the thought of like, they're coming, <laughs> they're coming yeah. here and they're on their way and they've sent a few things on that can travel faster. And the last kind of major element of the book is that factions have kind of started to splinter within the group that knows the aliens that are coming. And of course, very reminiscent of like more hardcore religious sects versus more 
mainstream or liberal or redemptive, you might even say liberal sect of a religion. And so, yeah, there's like a lot of kind of like heady stuff that I think is portrayed. Like it's, it's easy for someone like me who's not a physicist and who hasn't been steeped very much in like simulation theory or uh, all that kind of stuff to, to get. But I still found myself like a little bit like, okay, I think I get it. But right, this isn't right. this isn't a, the easiest book we've done. I would say no. I don't no. think it's like an impossible. But we've also book. done Infinite Jest, so <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> but I mean, this one, it, it it made me have to like really focus on, and and I I don't know. Like I'm excited to talk to you about it because I don't know if I totally get all of it. I think I get all of the plot. I don't know if I totally understand all of the kind of like philosophical and physical implications of this story, which I'm obviously excited to talk to you about, but I think that's like the main thrust of this novel is all of that stuff. Yeah. And, and basically uh, there's a group of scientists that seem to be going crazy and killing themselves. And there's this, right. Yeah. There's a, the society, what are they, what's the name of the society again? Do you remember the, the scientific organization it's the frontiers of human knowledge or something the human right. frontier is that the one that like that pan hand guy is part of yeah but it's all it's it's uh it's kind of in a sense of front for the eto but yeah frontiers of science frontiers of science the frontiers of science and their their weighing is put is kind of planted among them to try to discover and this is the mystery part yeah. of discover why are these science killing scientists killing themselves? And we we find out it's because basically the Trisolarians have sent these proton-sized AIs that uh, to Earth to basically stop human science from progressing beyond a certain point. Yeah, right. Because it's like the principle is. Um uh it's like they're, they're like making people not have faith in science and like well basically if science doesn't fall like if you can't trust the data coming out of like your quantum research yeah which if you have proton sized ais that can travel you know almost instantaneously around the globe they can you know be in and you never know where they are the idea is that they can be there messing up your experiments so you have no idea yeah right what's yeah, happening yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and then, then there's that really crazy scene where wang sees a countdown and so like th these protons are also like causing what are they what are they called again oh i feel so bad that i can't remember the name they have a name for them anyway it'll it'll probably come to me <laughs> there's but, a lot to uh, this novel there's a ton to it. They have that whole scene with the pool balls too, right? Yeah. And like things just not not obeying physics, which is really cool. It's almost like this uh, magical realism that we're experiencing like a little bit as well mm -hmm. in this book. So yeah, it's like casting like very deep epistemological doubt uh, on your own ability to apprehend the world. Yeah. And like this is particularly troubling for scientists who've dedicated their lives to like <laughs> theoretical physics yeah i mean <laughs> i don't know like i i don't know exactly where to start but maybe it's like i i was a little bit um that part of the novel felt a little hand wavy to me because i was like would this really be what scientists do if they <laughs> like, right well, I, yeah. I just That's um question, right because like the problem is my intuitions are so scattered on this because 
I can't even comprehend the universe where I can talk about the non-continuity or the non or uh, or the non-randomness of reality in our apprehension is the one that necessi- necessitates that. I guess yeah. you know what I mean like were yeah. it not the case rather than speaking coherent English grammar to you I would just be making noises and shouting and falling over and like like I just I can't even think about what that world looks like. Well this is maybe the most difficult part of the uh you know of the story to suspend your disbelief on right is that the trisolarian civilization has been able to somehow survive evolve life and survive <laughs> by, by dehydrating themselves yeah by dehydrating themselves exactly into these so. like tiny little I, and i am looking i i have read the whole series right i feel bad that i can't remember all of the names right now but it's been a long uh long couple of months but uh i think it, it goes even better like for everyone listening to this we're going to talk about the first one but like read the whole series because sure. It gets better and better. But the first one is awesome. And and probably one of like it's one of those things where it's like, remember when Hunger Games came out and then and then all these dystopian novels started to come out with kind of a similar yeah. like Maze Runner, and I think there's a few others that were just they kind of went along that dystopian train. Uh, there's lots of examples like that of things that you know, once something gets big, then there's kind of knockoffs. But this was like some very original sci-fi like it didn't feel like it was really and i know that there are arguments by some people who have read it that it is a knockoff of a japanese novel but the point for me is that when i read it it was like this is some original thinking and i'm honestly it was the first time in this year where i like couldn't put a book down Mm -hmm. i would say like i like i just read it front to back basically Mm didn't do anything else but well read. yeah it's for sure original and unique and i enjoyed it i, I just don't totally know if i get it <laughs> i know I, like i get the story and i get i just don't know if i get the new the, again the nuances of the implications the philosophical implications of the scientific i guess postulations uh yeah so well, so that's a really interesting scene at red base right where she's sitting there monitoring the sounds of the universe and like it's such a good scene where she's monitoring it and it's just so painful right because mm-hmm. like you're just you've, you you never feel more alone than staring at that screen and just seeing those waves and and like being like there's nothing and no one out there and then suddenly the message comes through and then with almost the same words describing that experience for the tri seeing it as well and Mm -hmm. the difference being of course that there's only really it seems like one or two bases on earth and there's thousands of bases on transalaran that was just so perfect too but like the ethos of this is so scientific in a sense of being like uh, a deeply curious desire to understand the universe but a but a very empty and like when you're reading this novel, at least when I was reading it, it just seemed so big. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. the the scale at which we're encountering the universe feels appropriate, and you feel when you you can't help finishing this book and be like, "Wow, we are small little," <laughs> you know. We're the the dust mode caught in the sunbeam. Yeah, this is a much this is like a, a more novel slash prosaic version of the pale blue dot. 
Yeah, uh, this is not a glorification of the human spirit in a sense, right? It's uh, <laughs> yeah. it is a it is a reflection on our place in the universe, yeah. but like a lot less friendly than the pale blue dot. Like it's, <laughs> yeah. it isn't saying yeah, yeah, everyone yeah. you ever loved here. It's like every evil and horror that has ever been perpetrated here is kind of small and meaningless. Yeah, I think um, like the pale blue dot is like a reflection on the smallness of of earth in the cosmos from a human perspective whereas like something like the three body problem can be an element of it can be considered like the view of the insignificance of humanity from the from the of, universe perspective from the point of view of like a different planet yeah <laughs> or like yeah, a rock exactly <laughs> but i think the the really interesting philosophic question that i wanted to talk to you about is what kind of impact do you think uh, on like uh, on a let's call it a cosmic as they do in the second book cosmic sociology what do you what kind of cosmic sociology do you think would be developed in a society with which there was no way of predicting even the seasonality of the future oh i think that would make us completely different creatures than we are now yeah i don't think we but, would but have in evolved what ways do you way. think oh man i don't know because like like that question is so deep that like that goes even below the roots of our evolved past because we had to anticipate seasonality and patterns and understand them to survive. I mean, I even just read Steven Pinker's new book, Rationality, and he gives a story about how even in the modern day, the the kind of like hunters in the Kalahari Desert, like they follow tracks. They know which tracks are which animals and which ones aren't, right? If you could never even, if every time you saw a porcupine track, it could be a tiger, like what could you ever do, right? Like you could well, That's the interesting thing, right? Is that, <laughs> is that this is the um, absurd, not the absurdity, but the kind of uncanny valley feeling that you get from the three body problem game and the book is it's like, you're in this world that seems to follow a lot of the other rules mm-hmm. of the universe, right? Gravity, yeah. except oh, not all the time, right? <laughs> and and yet, you know, there's water, and it's it's not like absolute chaos reigns, and yet, enough. So there's this, you know, feeling among, especially with Wang. He's like, you know, the three body problem. He gets it right away because he's a physicist. He's like oh, right, like, we need to be able to calculate this problem, and that's mm. the problem. But, like, as those things are revealed, as as not a physicist or a scientist, I'm reading it, I don't know about the three-body problem. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was. I, when I started reading it, I didn't even know what it was. No. But it's a very famous, like, problem, right? It's like Which is essentially, calculate- like, the impossibility of accurately predicting the gravitational force maybe or the movement well, it would of- be the it would be the um as far as i understand it it's the impossibility of tracking accurately the position of of the of the bodies as they are orbiting one another because when it's two if they're orbiting one another it's very easy and obviously if there's only one with planets and everything it's just well we exist in that kind mm-hmm. of a solar system but if there's three if you Seemingly, if you add a third, the gravitational and rotational everything, right? It just gets thrown out the window. Which because- is why we're we're talking about chaotic eras, because in this simulation video game that Wang finds himself in a lot, they have stable eras and they have chaotic eras. And the chaotic eras are when 
gravity or like sunrise and sunset is just so capricious because there's like three suns, I guess. Yeah, right? yeah. exactly. So and, there's these three they, they stars. Kind of are, there's three stars that are so close to each other. But they're basically passing this planet off into different orbits. Yeah, exactly. And, and so the, they can't predict the orbit of this planet at all. So they live in this chaotic era, which kind of made like it sounds like it's like combining like living on the edge of a volcano during the most intense climate change storms you've ever had with like tsunamis and flood like it's like every natural the best way to describe well, there's it. that one scene where gravity just stops working <laughs> yeah, too yeah, right yeah. it's like well and there's the 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 two falling stars the three falling stars right that are predicting things i i loved how the the storytelling through the the through the discovery through the scientific discovery of the video game. I thought, yeah. I thought it was oh, phenomenal. For sure. And I loved how it presented these, the, these problems. And then it's like, why don't you make a computer, but make it out of hu- like, well, not humans, but like make it out of sentient beings using flags. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And well, and I mean, things like that. it's funny you use that word just as a historical by like the, the computers of the past were people. Right. Yes. It was like the the functions that computers do used to have to be done by people. Yeah. In the same yep, way that like exactly. all the before calculators, all your arithmetic was done by hand, and and you know like human pe- well, humans. The being other able to interesting do it. thing about this the, the thought experiment that's brought in right is it's like how are other ways that other cosmic civilizations could have advanced, and like for example with the Trisolarans. They've had hundreds of different civilizations and they've had, but because of the way they think and the way that they've existed, the way they see the universe, it took them a lot longer on a galactic time scale to reach, uh, you know, the information age, a lot of civilizations to reach the information age, whereas humanity, you know, I guess got it in one go is the idea. Uh, Lucky us. But what like it, it is really something to think about, right? Is that we we take so much of how our world works here for granted, mm-hmm. and we don't even think about how, how something like that would just utterly transform your relationship with the universe. Yeah. So, like, getting back to your philosophical question about like what would this change about us? I like I don't know. I I can't even really think because I can't think about how I would think about it if it was the case. Right. Right, <laughs> right? like it's it's postulated in this novel was a kind of like prior the Trisolarans just happen to live in a place in the galaxy where this is the case. Okay, fair. But what's weird to me about the Trisolarans is how similar they are to humans. You know, like I yes. just it, it's like they seem to have. Well, that was what I, that's what I meant. I thought that was the one difficult, like suspension of suspension of disbeliefs in this was like, okay, but that part was difficult to understand from a human perspective. It's like if civilization got crushed like that over and over again, like I don't know that we would keep going back. So in that sense, I guess they're different. Again, every single intuition of mine doesn't know what to do with the question, like, how do you live if there's only gravity sometimes? <laughs> right? Do you know what I mean? Like, well, I don't know. If I just like, if I just start well, floating no, away. I mean, that's pretty rare. The the three star problem is very rare. Usually. Yes, 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 yes. But isn't there? There's one where they like are all in a line. Yeah, it's like a zizigy they call it, and 
they're on the line and it just kills them all i think right or oh yeah no it, it, the gravity becomes right. a problem yeah yeah, yeah 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 exactly so i don't know what do you think about the cosmic sociology of this david oh i don't know i i, I was thinking about how so one of the things that I find interesting about us that, that this pulled out that I hadn't really thought of before is how optimistic we are. Mm. Like, we're not really that fatalistic of a species. No, I mean, it's hard to do anything if that's your outlook. True, <laughs> true. <laughs> and and interestingly enough, that's kind of what I felt like was being pulled out here is they aren't either in a sense. Like, they, yes, they they understand that the chaotic times are coming and that they can't tell, but, but yet there's this weird optimism of trying to figure it out. And I thought that was my favorite part of this book was even in that chaotic world, science still made sense. Yeah. And there was this kind of interesting and weird ambiguity between the scientist and like the shaman of the person who could predict the next stable era. And part of that, I think, was like, because this is like a modern, you know, civilization spanning epic of the, you know, war and peace variety, I think, to a degree, but like a human story. I mean, again, there's there's one way to think about this is like the epistemology question is one of the most, I would probably say the most fundamental one in distinguishing between scientific predictions and um, oracular oh, yes. ones. That's right. right. I remember what I was going to say. You look at the like look at the theme that he's pulling out here. I think this is the the book that we've read that is t- that has most glorified science of any of the anything we've read. Mm. More than foundation, more than anything because whatever it is about Liu or he believe he's he definitely like from the beginning his hero is the martyr who dies because he refuses to say that reality isn't real for the sake of communism. Yeah. Right. And Wang is the hero because he refuses to believe that science can't be figured out in this game. It's like, no, I'm going to be able to figure out the science. It's just like science applies everywhere. You just have to think about the problem and you'll be able to discover why. Right. And so you have all these shamans like trying to predict things and using what like progressively weirder things. And he's just taking the data and utilizing it to figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think one of the things that maybe I thought about a little bit was how this book posits it as like, there are no laws of physics basically because of the three body problem that can make it impossible to, do any predictions about the laws of physics. Again, they're just totally random. I guess my intuition to that problem is that, well, that just means we haven't discovered an even more fundamental factor of physics. Right. Right? Right. Because it's like, now maybe that's a reductio ad absurdum, but prior to Newton, there were more local interpretations of why things happened. Like, well, well, I mean, the earth was flat. (laughs) Never mind what is gravity well, but all... i mean there's i mean there's people in greek times who knew the world wasn't flat. sure 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 but like the idea of a force pulling something down as no, a, yeah. like a law of physics like there were just there were like so many different kakamimi kind of like predictions or interpretations of why things fell like why go down versus up like I, and i'm not an expert on these things but like aristotle had an opinion on this stuff and so did yeah. like 
all of these other people in history. And then Newton comes around. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's a force, right? Like this is right. a whole different way to think about this. And then Einstein comes along and it's like, and these forces are actually subservient to much greater forces. Right. And then we're learning things about quantum mechanics and dark energy and dark matter that who knows, maybe in 200 years, we have like a paradigm shift that incorporates those things into even more fundamental nature laws that we can now ascertain with better instruments. And well, that's basically, that's what I like about this book. That's what I mean. Like, I feel like that's kind of my reaction to this is like with Wang is like, well, what's the next level down of And that's kind of what Wang's doing is right. He's like, no, no, no. Science still makes sense. It's just the we, we haven't figured out, we we haven't correctly processed the data. Well, and I think certainly a social critique that is very glaring in this book because the Cultural Revolution is a backdrop to a lot of the narrative of this is, um, oh, okay, the scientific ethos hasn't figured out this one specific thing. Ergo, it's flawed. Ergo, I will step in with my pet interpretation or what I want otherwise to be with my own agenda, um, whether that be like the Marxists and the and the cultural revolutionists in the early part of the book, or like the factions in the Adventists versus the uh, redemptionists, redemptionists of the yeah, ETO. Yeah. What I've always been intrigued by, I suppose, is like the difference between giving up from a hard problem versus thinking this hard problem needs a more simple answer then because we don't have the answer to the hard problem yet. So we need a different answer because we need any answer versus like, well, no, we got to get back to work. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we got to keep figuring this out. Yeah. Now. Okay. Is it possible that at base reality, the universe is random and capricious and unmeasurable and undiscoverable I suppose. I think it's more likely that human beings will never be able to do that versus right. versus so like you, you you would argue that the that the universe is is inherently orderly. I don't know. Right. But it's orderly for us. <laughs> Which I guess that's the interesting question, right? Because it's mm-hmm. like one of the things I've been thinking about a lot, particularly after reading this is the difference between uh, the religion of science and the practice of science or the philosophy of science. And we've talked about that a decent amount on this podcast, but I I just keep being brought back to this book in the sense that this is a man who loves science, the philosophy of science, not the religion of science. And yet he is very honest with the fact that it can't answer a lot of questions, mm-hmm. right? And 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 I don't know about you, but there's a there's a very deep melancholy, epistemological melancholy to this book. Yeah, that I a very much enjoyed, but B it was like, wow, this is like this is a different perspective than the a lot of the Western literature we've been reading. And I've read that. Um, kind of the Confucian foundations of of Sino civilization, Chinese civilization is more pessimistic. But reading that, and I, I don't want to say, oh, I've read one book, now I understand the, you know, yeah, right. the teleological and, you know, ethos of a civilization. But it was just, it's not, you know, go boldly when where no man has gone before. It's It's like, 
meaningless, meaningless. All of life is meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 What's interesting about the way this book unra- un- uh, reveals itself to us, the audience, is that we don't really get a sense of like extraterrestrial element of it until about halfway, maybe two thirds of the way through it. So when we're first introduced to this game, like it, it it's feels, a mystery novel. It's a mystery, and it's much more like um, like a, the philosophy of simulation yeah. versus um, the philosophy of extraterrestrial life in the universe. So before I, I mean, you can kind of guess that this is probably where this book is going, but before it's like totally revealed, I don't know. Like, what were what were some of your thoughts around like the simulation element of it? Well, like, yeah, and. I just enjoyed one of the things that they talk about a lot is that the, the the game seemed simple, but the deeper you went, the the more detail there was, right? Everything was incredibly detailed. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed the idea that a video game would be used to educate people on on a on a way of life and a way of thinking, right? And and he, let's call, <laughs> let's only. call it indoctrinate people into a <laughs> a cult, right? You know what sure. I mean? Like yeah. essentially, this is a this is a kind of doomsday cult of, of sorts uh, with different factions. But mm. what other novels can you think of that use a video game for something like that? There there really aren't that many. Maybe Ready Player One. Yeah, Ready Player One is really the one that springs to mind. And, but and that's like, only because it's like such a, a famous totally one. different way of looking at even simulation theory from, say, The Matrix, which we did our uh, episode on recently. Because this is one you can just go in and out of. And yet it's using the information in that game to create, you know, fanatics, right? There's that scene where Wang goes and meets up with the other free body problem (laughs) players. And they're like, they like the game more than they like reality. And I think that was the most interesting question that was brought to me about red base and that moment where she decides whether or not to respond Mm-hmm. to the Transalarans, right? Because they send a message and and then re- and then she immediately receives do not respond. Like, yeah. Do not respond. Well, immediately, like eight years later, because of the Well, yes, but like <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the first re- no, no, that's the first response to uh to them just sending out the message. Yeah. Or she sent out the message, yes. Now, maybe this is a clarification question, but the Trisolarans have given whichever member of the ETO, which is the, um, I can't even remember what it stands for, but this is the group of people who are aware of the Trisolarans. They give them this kind of simulation so that they can run this. Now, are the Trisolarans doing that so that humans can understand what the Trisolarans have gone through when they come? Or did they do that so that um, humans could figure out their own thing like i feel like the trisolarans don't really have want humans to figure out anything so why would they have given them this game well you think about how wang feels about the game and he goes into that meeting with the other fans of the video game and they have an admiration for the trisolarans for the trisolarans because of what they've been through they like trisolaran civilization better and part of why they seem to like it better is because it survived all of this hardship and turmoil and figuring out hard oh, problems. Oh, for sure. Maybe, and maybe and I, 
maybe this is an unimportant question, but like, it I makes think sense. it's myth building. Like, I think, I mean, I don't want to give too much away because I've read the other two books, right? right? So I get why the humans are interested in it, but I don't. I guess I just don't understand but why the humans people. made it, right? It's propaganda. It's a propaganda tool, essentially. So, but the, okay, so the humans made it out of information given to them by the Trisolarans. Yes. But yes. why would the Trisolarans give them enough info to make this game? Is it because they want this sect of humans to like pave the way for them kind of thing? Well, yeah. And essentially like before the Sophons get there, they don't want the humans. So the Sophons are those proton yeah. things that they created. And you get, you learn a lot more about those in the second book. As I said, I highly recommend reading. Sure, them. sure, sure. But, but the, but the, point of the trisolarans doing this is because they need to create they need to stop i mean it says this in the book the best way to defeat an, an enemy is to stop their science yeah and i mean that's kind of the, the big theme of the book right is if you stop a civilization science you crush it mm -hmm. and so how are they planning on stopping the science is making people making the scientists not able to trust their science mm -hmm. right and the cool thing is like you said halfway through Wang doesn't know that this has to do with aliens, but we're but we're also following when G her story. I wanted to go back to that for a second. Is like how many novels is one of the main characters so bitter and hateful towards humanity in general that like their great quote unquote noble act and the thing that makes them a hero is to essentially invite an alien race to destroy <laughs> earth yeah until she visits the lonely peasants and villagers who change her mind about humanity <laughs> right but she's still done she's still done it right yeah she's still that was made that choice yeah. right yeah and then she meets evans and and there's all that too right but i thought that was another way of looking at it where like how often do you get a story about, you know, first encounters or any of that where the encounter is, Hey, come and we can't fix our problems. We are awful. Like that is a reasonable psychological position to assume that somebody could have encountering uh, an extraterrestrial, right. Is, there's a lot of humans who feel that way. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I think that that's actually one of the most comprehensible parts of the book for me was like... Well, yeah, and and what, what <laughs> interested me about that and what I wanted to hear your thoughts on is we're now in this weird stage, which you're talking about a little bit before we started recording, uh, where, you know, going into the second year of the pandemic. Now, when they pull Gen Z and millennials, 47% are saying, you know, they think the world is doomed. Mm -hmm. and that's what she's experiencing right she she doesn't just think the world is doomed and and it's interesting that they bring the environmentalism into that too right mm -hmm. where where she's you know she's watching these trees be harvested and just nature being destroyed and hating humanity for that too hating humanity for killing her dad hating them for being so anti science something that she loves and hating them for being destroyers of the natural world and and those you know feelings and perspectives on the world result in her asking an entity outside of humanity to come and fix humanity's problems and of course that becomes a religion so i was wondering kind of what your thoughts are on that 
that perspective that I thought was really well developed in the novel of just that kind of anti-human perspective in a sense, but like just no faith in humanity anymore, I guess. It's kind of the opposite of thou mayest. Yeah. Right. It's like, no, you're doomed. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, I think all messianic stories have a grain of that kind of mentality or psychology. Like, why do you need a Jesus if there isn't like a some sort of like fallen humanity to be saved in the first place? Right. Like you kind of have the problem that the Messiah needs to come fix. And so I think from that element of psychology, like it's very comprehensible why a logical step would be, well, maybe that Messiah comes from a different planet right, <laughs> or a different civilization. So that's like one part of it is like the savior complex story is very archetypal, I think, because of how perennially and over time and space, very many humans have noted <laughs> the kind of like tragedy it is of our existence and how shitty people can be in that tragic part of their existence and all of that. But the part that goes that like extra step of like being anti-human or hating. Yeah. I just think that that is, it's like the difference between Batman and Raza Ghoul. <laughs> like right. when we talked about yeah. like, that mentality of, um, yes, it's broken. We both agree that it's broken and what we disagree on is what to do about it. I don't know. I mean, I, I when G in the book is an interesting character because she actually kind of has a change of heart after she's already like done the deed, right? Like yeah. it's kind of like she I I think she wishes she could have kind of taken it back after she brings this brings the Trisolarans to earth to essentially what seems to be take it over, although I can't speculate on that too much cuz you know the next two books. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think I think it's interesting just to see it in a like a, a book from a, a an author on the other side of the planet. Like, I, I don't know if I have a good answer for you, David. It's just like William James talked about in some of his work that some people are just born healthy minded and some people are born sick minded. He called them. We might say optimistic versus pessimistic by nature or by temperament, but you know, I like his language a bit more. And I just some people are just kind of like they see all of the terrible things. I mean, this is someone who watched her father get beaten to death with belt buckles by like 18 year olds. Yeah. That could really fuck you up. And that could like really make you not want any, like it is an interesting thing to see often, I think in intense activist cultures and certainly in much Marxist ones, the catastrophizing and you see this in some environmentalism stuff too, the catastrophizing goes so much further than the actual problem, even if the problem is huge, right? Yeah. Like like the, yeah. the a problem like climate change is huge, but the catastrophizing goes even further than how big the problem might be kind of thing. Same with, same with like the problem of capitalism, right? It goes like <laughs> for much of Marxism, it goes beyond economics to like cognition itself. The problem is cognition itself. And we have to like disabuse you of your cognition basically that's a different topic well and interestingly enough there is a strong strain of buddhism where existence is suffering mm-hmm. right and the the goal is really to transcend ex- existence itself and i i think it's interesting that buddhism has played such a big role in the found 
to the same degree that Christianity played in the West uh, and the founding of, of the Chinese civilization and way of thinking and language and mm -hmm. all of these things that we get a kind of taste of that, I think, in a lot of the perspective that we're given in this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I guess um, maybe is like the finishing on that point is like, this is probably why I've partly I find myself so the, the ethical things that make me interested in science and I, I, there's some episode you said like science as a as an alleviator of human suffering has been like such a huge boon in our species development yeah. especially over the last couple hundred years I guess like in that Batman Raza Gul dichotomy I I made up I like the I really resonate deeply to the concept of meliorism which is like the root of ameliorate which is to make better through human action and i think that that is in its best form that is the liberal goal <laughs> is uh yeah. um, is meliorism to ameliorate our situation which doesn't mean perfect it it just means to like incrementally improve it as best as we can through, you know, trial and error and experiment and observation and hypotheses, testing and all that kind of stuff. I guess that's like the psychology of Wang that's really fun in this book is like, he's like, oh, well, yeah, this is a big problem. And it's like a lot bigger than I thought. But like, have you thought of this? Have you tried this? Yeah. <laughs> have you yeah. Like, we could maybe do this. I wonder if this would work. Why is it like even how... It's something so prosaic in the book, but even how he like goes about falsifying possibilities of yeah. like why he's seeing the numbers in the pictures. Like he gets his son, or I can't remember if it's a son or a daughter, but he gets his kid. His wife and his son. Yeah, yeah both, he gets his yeah. wife and his son to take pictures. Oh, okay. It's not the cam. Is it the camera? Is it me? Is it the time of day? Is it like, right? Like he just does all of these like falsifications to not find out exactly what is happening, but to go about discovering what isn't happening. You know, that's the X's and O's of science. And I, I guess that's like what maybe Wenji lost sight of. And I think that that's like often why I love meliorism is because it's not a silver bullet. It's very like overtly not a silver bullet. Yes. It's just like, yeah, here's a little bit we can do right now and we'll see what tomorrow brings. And, yeah. and that, and that like, that isn't emotionally satisfying very often to the catastrophic mindset. No. Right? And no. so I think, I don't know. Like, I think some people could benefit through therapy. Some people just have to be like, said, sorry, we don't listen to you. Now, what, yeah. what's, what's interesting in <laughs> right. this book is how this one person who has a, kind of this sick-mindedness or this sadness about existence that William James would have referenced is someone who can bring about the destruction of humanity through these trisolarans coming to Earth and destroying it, which is like a stand-in for maybe someone unhinged like that who has a nuke or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, Although, interestingly, it's like so much more, in this sense, I guess, tragic a little bit, right? Because you get this, the story of someone who just so hates everything that humanity is doing that they don't just, you know, a nuke is like, you often think of a nuke as revenge, right? Or something that, yeah. uh, or something that's done in retaliation or 
And this is just done because she's given up on humanity. Well, I mean, and I know it's not quite at this part of the book where it happens, but I think you brought up the word sociology a little bit before. What's really interesting is how these kind of mentalities coalesce around other mentalities like this, right? You know, right. you could say misery loves its company, um, maybe like existentially despairing and uh, humanity hating people love its company as well, right? <laughs> right? Like, right. it's just interesting how everyone in the book is kind of described as this, like everyone in the ETO or the people playing the three body problem game, um, none of them are working class people, right? No. They're all celebrities or the wealthy or the influential, yeah. CEOs, executives, like it's all kind of the hoi polloi of Chinese society, which I think we're supposed to like glean from that. Like these are people who are kind of like less in touch with what most people's lives are like and thus maybe don't have like a grounding or a or a kind of like <laughs> ironically they don't have a north star. So they yeah. want three of them to, <laughs> to like get, but it's like, this is their, I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's too easy to be disdainful. Uh, like, like what, what is a lazier message than humans suck, right? Like yeah. that, like what's lazier than that? And yet that seems to be the coin of the realm in, uh, in like elite society. In, in the book, anyway, whether that's true in our right society or too. not. Well, I mean, you know, like that that in itself is like a little bit of a ham-fisted way to, to think about it. But I do think that there is a correlation between, yeah. I mean, we've talked, I've talked about it a lot on this podcast, but like that's like George Orwell's nonfiction is so much about that, about how yeah. um, <laughs> basically he says, by far and away, the worst part about socialism are the socialists. If basically, if socialism had better philosophers and and advocates, no. <laughs> it would do much better than what we have now. He's like his most derisive comments are for the people who most loudly proclaim the philosophy he himself believes in. Yeah, <laughs> which is you know, there's a lot to be said for him on that. I I, I feel a lot of. Uh brotherhood with him on that because i've often said most of the people ag who agree with me agree with me for the wrong reasons mm -hmm. but <laughs> i guess there's an element of arrogance to that too well and uh, yeah for sure but i mean like in our lives what is the alternative than human life right like what is it and the three-body problem maybe gives an interesting answer to that question which is this other civilization that's coming Right. Yeah, survival in a, in a way fittest, that in right? a way that like maybe a colony of ants, if they can ask these questions, say, well, what else is there besides us? And then yeah, and you're going to love the second book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I had the good fortune to be born into what William James calls the healthy minded person. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like you, the one who probably did, though, though I don't have like a Pollyanna view of humanity and in fact have a very tragic view of life that doesn't actually get me down that much because like, what else are we going to do but try and ameliorate it? Right. Like what <laughs> I like, I like the fact that I live in a temperature controlled house because it lets me live in Canada in the winter. 
I like that um, I can talk to you over the internet to record our podcasts. I like yep. that uh, even like low tech things like blankets and beds exist. All of these are ameliorations of the human condition that uh, why make them if humanity is the enemy? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Why? If humanity is the enemy, why would you limit human suffering? Mm -hmm. And so I just think that, well, <laughs> perhaps the Bolsheviks had that answer for you, but that's right. a different podcast. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's a whole different podcast that you've done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm understanding of some elements of anti-human fatalism or despair, but I just think this is the hard-nosed part of my personal philosophy where I'm just like, yeah, too bad. You can live that for you. Leave me out of it. Right. And if you don't leave me out of it, we have a real problem. Yeah. <laughs> and of yeah. course, this is the age-old political question of like who gets their hands on the levers of power to leave or not leave someone out of it, right? Yeah, yeah. And then who gets control of freedom of association and what is or isn't an okay thing to say in public and taboos and all that kind of thing. I mean, like, I know we're wandering all over the place here, but like this was the whole point of the statute on religious freedom and the inception of the United States is because like dozens of different Protestant uh, denominations wanted to seize, wanted to become the official church of America, mostly so they could persecute all the, you know, heretics of all the other Protestant denominations. <laughs> right, right. Which is why Jefferson said, no, none of you get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the problem. Like, none of you get it. And so. No, that's what we came over here to get away from. <laughs> exactly. Like, you know what? We'll deal, we'll deal with the side effect of uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witness and the like bountiful religious freedom that's going to come from all you crazy motherfuckers over here, especially in Western New York. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's the price to be paid for um, not having a state sanctioned butcher. Yes. <laughs> of, yes. Of minorities and that kind of stuff. So anyway, I don't even remember what question I was answering of yours, but uh, that's my answer. I think we're I think we're just having a nice meandering conversation <laughs> about <laughs> a book. So what what were some of your thoughts? What were some of the things that struck you? Um, we've talked about most of them. I think we should probably spend a little bit of time on the reflections in this of the Cultural Revolution because that was like really interesting, and it was like the first part of the book. It was so 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 cool to get what I think nominally would be called a Western view of the Cultural Revolution from a Chinese writer. Yeah. Right? Like a non-propagandist, like a non-CCP propagandistic version of the Cultural Revolution from a yeah. Chinese writer, right? Because like, you know this, and I've said it a number of times, but every time you and I say China, that can be extrapolated more precisely to the ccp right true we're not talking true. about chinese people in fact no. often the most immiserated people of the ccp are chinese people <laughs> well pr pretty much they are yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> so i just was thought i thought it was so like it really puts it was the kind of thing that's like it puts to bed all of the kind of like very airy fairy excuses of like well it's just a different culture and it's just a different um, way of life is like, oh yeah, okay. Like, um, well, here's like a guy bullying wondered... bullying scientists into death with belt buckles is just another way of life. 
<laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And, but, like, I guess more substantively, it made me think again about, like, the... I really think one way a society gets sick, very sick, is when it lets its young people push its older generations around. Ah. And I just, I've been thinking about this a little bit lately, and I really, really hope I don't sound like an old crank, because I'm not quite an old (laughs) crank yet. I feel a little disappointed in the general, not, not in every specific, but I feel a little disappointed in the boomer and the Gen X generation in how they've allowed the 18 to 25 year old cohort to kind of push them around. <laughs> and I was, I was talking about like, cause, cause in the book, Wenji's father, I can't remember his name, like Yi Shantai Yi or something like that. He's a, like a world renowned physicist and he doesn't bow to the Maoist red guard takeover of his university. And he's basically beaten to death on stage in front of hundreds of people with belt buckles by like 18 and 19 year old girls. Right. And you know, not everything we've seen in the last, you know, number of years on North American campuses is exactly like the cultural revolution, but I'm hearing some rhymes you know, yep. I, I was it Twain say history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. But it rhymes, yeah. And I don't know, like I think I have a number of thoughts on this, but I was wondering, like, <laughs> it really made me think, like, if I'm thinking this now, is it gonna, like, is it is it even possible that it's gonna be the millennial generation that ha- that is gonna be like the first in three generations to to look back at at their kids and say, you know what, buddy, you're not that special. you actually aren't the center of the universe and uh, if you talk to your mom like that again you're grounded for a month (laughs) so fucking buck up kiddo (laughs) well i got that growing up (laughs) no i know and that's why i meant like it's not it's not the specific but no it was definitely you know, like I just mean, I, I and I'm not even talking about like K to 12 kids as much, although that's a little bit. I just mean that more 18 to 25 year old cohort where like in Goodwill Hunting, we talked about how the best scene wasn't when Robin Williams said it wasn't your fault. It says, I, I got sad about what you said, but then I realized you're a 19 year old kid and you don't know anything. And so I don't care what you say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just think that there has been a lack of solid calibration about like finding more positive things for the emotionality and the moral pathos of that age group to find themselves engaged in and a lot more catering to them in public life by Gen X and boomers. Yeah. And that's not a good idea because 19 year olds don't fucking know anything. No. And I know that cause I'm 34 and I don't know anything either. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I'm also like, a little tongue in cheek, but a little not because like I've, you know, we're, we're in our thirties and I'm looking at this like generation coming up after I mean, I'm like, Oh, I got to live 50 years with these people. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they chill out. <laughs> ah, that's all a little bit complainy. I, I don't know. I, I thought it was, I liked seeing how it would make sense that, scientists 
everywhere in the world would be targeted for ideological purposes, um, not just here, right? Like, obviously, it was like the professional classes that got a lot of the hate during the Cultural yeah. Revolution. And even like the part of the book that I laughed out loud at was how they weren't allowed to do their experiment of like if the sun amplified the radio signals that they wanted to send because Mao was the sun. Right. Yes. So yes. To, 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 to point this like radio wave function, I can't even remember what it's called, to point it directly at the sun is symbolic suicide in this culture. Well, that's a well, really, it's really hard to run experiments that way. <laughs> it was, it was such a great way to open a book because it, I mean, I can't think of another novel that's ever even introduced me to this idea in the way that the three body problem did, mm-hmm. right? Where it's, it's basically like, you want to talk about why science, why we should love science. Here's how stupid ideology makes you, mm-hmm. right? He, he, not only here's how evil ignorance is and it's interesting because in, in buddhism right uh there is no such thing as good and evil there's only harm and benefit right and ignorance generally speaking causes harm is the idea mm-hmm. right enlightenment causes benefit and it's it's such a cool cultural thing to see you know the author bring that out in his critique of the cultural revolution, which is essentially it's this blind and bloody commitment to ignorance, mm-hmm. uh, a refusal to question beliefs. And in fact, a fear of anything that could cause a questioning of beliefs that is that ultimately, if you think about it, that results in earth forfeiting its sovereignty over itself mm-hmm. in, in essence. Well, and I think even uh, extending that a bit further, because you're right, when we get to the point of the book where um, we learn a lot more about the ETO and Mike Evans, who has this pan-species communism, which is like, oh, man, you thought just regular communism was depressing and (laughs) untenable. (laughs) (laughs) These kind of, like, there's something to be said about the, uh, speaking of chaotic eras, ideologies like this are inherently unstable you're gonna have fractions and schisms which we see when the adventists and the redemptionists have different interpretations about how to handle the trisolarians coming and the adventists being much more aggressive and the redemptionists being a lot more passive and um you might think of it as the a god as judge and a god as love kind of right right like that kind of difference (laughs) whereas um those kind of schisms don't really happen in science. And if they do, they happen much more at the level of personality than at the level of data. You know, like it's, it, 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 it well, because it's, it's antithetical to science to be upset yeah. with someone for disagreeing with you. I think there's even a line in the book, something like you can't kill scientists. You just kill their thoughts. Yes. And there's and there's a a line from that in Karl Popper where it's like scientists create theories and let those die so that we can continue living. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 Like instead of killing each other, we kill our ideas, and that's like the lifeblood of the scientific ethos. 
And um, I just think it was so interesting that we had two major identifiable ideological factions in this book, the Cultural Revolution and then the ETO, which itself splinters. Well, and in a sense, so does the... So does the cultural revolution, right? There's the, you know, the children of the revolution are held, sent out into the rural areas to die, essentially, and no (laughs) one cares about them. Yeah, here, here, uh, here return your great cultural revolutionary heroes after their prime is over and their use has been exhausted. Maybe we've talked about this lots and we don't have to talk about it too much, but I I, I just see this all the time. Like, um, you don't have to comment too much on this, I know, because you're kind of an insider on this, but... If there were no liberal or NDP parties of Canada, I have a hard time believing the conservatives would get along with each other just left to their own devices, right? Like, well, we don't even really get along with each other as it is. Yeah, so. like all of these parties, <laughs> like all the political parties in Canada don't aren't like internally stable all the time no. either, right? It takes some sort oh, of yeah. like art of leadership to keep things going. And there's just something kind of like, categorically different from that way of associating yourself with other people in the world as the, as this uh, scientific method would be. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's an interesting kind of theme of this novel too. Again, I just love that there was so much of that from like a Chinese perspective in this. Right? Yeah. I, that was my favorite. Honestly, I said it at the beginning, but I would say my favorite thing about this was like, I feel like in a tiny sliver of a atomic, way i have a better understanding of how it feels to to live as a chinese person and think within that cultural paradigm Mm -hmm. and um just how uh i think there's like a line science has no language like it's a human universal and you know the drum i beat is always like what are the things that make us similar or bring us together and let's focus on those and not on the things that divide us and drive us apart because that goes nowhere good fast yeah and so it was a really cool kind of contrast and you know i mean (laughs) there it's just funny and maybe coincidental but the most famous real life alien cult is the uh, heaven's gate cult Right. If you, if you remember that one, they uh, all committed mass suicide in yeah. in '97, and they all had their matching Nikes on. It was really weird. So it's just like, anyway, the ETO is a lot more aggressive than they were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. There's there's so many great themes of even like environmentalism, science, um, family, factions, ideology. What I really liked too, I guess, another thing is how well Sixin Liu captured what people who are so ideologically driven or have been taken over by an idea, how they sound, right? Yeah. Like, kind of their yeah. anxiety. They're always looking for someone who's like kind of not living up to the true purity of the belief. Like you're not quite as in love with the trisolarians as I think you should be kind of thing. Like that whole schizophrenia and, and disassociativeness around what makes a true believer. Right. I, I yeah. think that was really well captured too in this book. And, uh, I liked our, our, our hard nosed detective solving the problem, but also being like this, 
absolutely, you know, psychopathic in a sense, like <laughs> psychopathically efficient. What did you think of the scene with the ship? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just before I talk about that, we should, yeah. I should note that like, this is definitely not a character driven book. This is an idea driven no. book. But the one character, Dashi, the kind of blue collar detective, he was, he was, in one sense, he was really the only character in the sense that he was like the only like 3D type of character. But right. Yeah. <laughs> he was pretty funny. And he was like, he had street smarts, you know? No. Oh, Everybody well, else in the book had book smarts and way lab more smarts. than like, like these, some of these generals and stuff too, <laughs> yeah, right? He's yeah. like, I can solve this problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the boat scene, I just think is like, well, honestly, even though it's like grotesque and kind of like disturbing, my sense is that like, not obviously given the technology not exactly like this but my sense is shit like this happens all the time right i, I just right. I, I just think governments or intelligence bodies or authorities do these kind of like pragmatic calculuses all the time of like uh well yeah, well drone strikes think of drone strikes right, right? those yeah. are the ones we know about like yeah i know that there's a lot of innocent people on this ship but there's also someone we need to get, and it's worth it because we're not going to get another chance, right? Right, and and this is the future of humanity. That's the argument, right? It's not to and it's like it's not on the face of it irrational. No, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. So that's what makes it a hard ethical problem is that it's like, well, you know, th this is why there's a lot of great drama and movies and books around like we'll do it this way, which probably has some innocent life lost or we'll, and then there's always like the one heroic character says, no, let's do it the harder way that I'll go in and I'll sacrifice myself to try and get it myself. Right. Take out the only one yeah. bad person. Right. Like we've been talking a little bit about cults, like the Waco TV show, the whole drama of that TV show is around like one, the negotiator who wants to keep talking to David Koresh and the group and the guy who just wants to send in the troops and burn it all down. <laughs> Right. Women and children right. be damned kind of thing. Although that's not exactly how it's portrayed, but yeah, I don't know. What'd you think about the ship? Because I'm assuming a lot of people won't have read this book. Right. True. That are true. Listening to this. They're, the, the way that they capture kind of the plan, the, the, the Trisolarians have given information to only the ETO, which is this, the cult that's following them and the government, of China wants to get their hands on it along with like well the whole government of the world yeah, they, the government they of the basically world. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. it's on this boat that's run by the ETO and so what they're going to do is they're going to use Wang's nanomaterials which are basically like hair thin razor blades to kind of cut the ship but like into hair thin razor blades with like the tensile strength necessary to create a space elevator yeah 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 like it's like yeah. it's not even that it's sharp it's just that it's so strong and that, small and yeah. small that it'll cut you and so like basically they're cutting through people they're cutting through the ship at like i think they said 50 centimeter yeah they set it up at like the that. panama canal yeah. like on layers like basically they have this material set up in layers so that the, when the ship is going through the canal it basically cuts the ship like a layer cake yeah in, into like seven or eight oh no way more like probably like 25 pieces and you know everyone is going to be cut in half as well every person and not yeah. every and like there's gonna be a lot of innocent people on there because not everyone's at the deepest level of the eto so anyway and yeah. the reason they do this is because they are afraid that any other methodology they use would destroy the digital information yeah. held or, or that the eto would destroy it before they got their hands on it and then they wouldn't have a good handle on the, the tri plans
And then that would just make for a bad book because the Trisolarans plans are like three of the last four chapters of the book or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. What'd you think about it? Well, I, I, I just wanted to reiterate like the, the imagination there, but that, that's hard sci-fi, right? It's like yeah. using hard science to solve narrative problem or, or what's going on. It was just, I thought it was a great example of using technology we know we're going to be able to build mm-hmm. uh, and, and showing how it could be used to very, very good, like, um, you know, as a tool in, in a, in the service of humanity, I suppose, but like as a, again, another, another way for us to die as fragile beings. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't know. You have any final thoughts? Uh, I do want to do the full series. So, cause I have a lot of other mm. thoughts, but I don't want to mix up it, the yeah. books. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I guess I would just say, I thought the, the parallel storytelling was very good that the hard science of this is probably the best that I've read in sci-fi and the, uh, the perspective you'll get on a Chinese civilizational way of looking at existence. And those things are just, it's just really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would just say like, what what is so f- delicious about a book like this is that um, on the surface of it, the main thrust is this very non-human thing, the three-body yeah. problem, right? Which is like a problem of kind of like gravity and math, I guess, <laughs> which are like not the most intuitive parts of human life. And it's like painted as like an alien civilization. So like ostensibly so much of this book is not about people. And yet, all the themes are about like human folly, you know, and like the, the cult and the cultural revolution and the despair of like, because I've had a few bad things happen to me, that must mean all of humanity sucks kind of thing. So many tidbits of like kind of human frailty like that with the real hero of the book being the scientific method and the ethos of science. Uh, which is like a, a redemptive feature of humanity, I suppose. And so I just, I liked that this like kind of at, at a, is a very human story cloaked in a very non-human format, yet <laughs> doubly funny because I found like the translation I had was very kind of wooden. So the prose, right. I didn't think the prose was very good, but I, again, I, I, put that up to a translation and not even a bad translation. It's just like, I just think that there's so many nuances of foreign languages. that It's hard to capture in a translation. Right. Yeah. So I just, I found myself fascinated by the fact that I'd really enjoyed a story of a book that I thought had very like kind of basic prose for how complicated the novel itself was. Yeah. That's a really good point. (laughs) That's a really good point. Cause I, like I, it, like I, I love books and movies, but like this one, it gripped me. It, uh, and you're right. I don't, it wasn't the prose that gripped me. It was the ideas. Well, and you know what, David, even though it's just the two of us, I really felt we've come to a three body solution here. <laughs> Our relationship is the third body. <laughs> a long conversation. Yeah. Just before we tap out, David, why don't you tell us a little bit about your other podcast? 
Yes, so I have another podcast called uh, The Canadian Story. It's uh, with our with our mutual cousin, Zach, and we are discussing there what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. And it's uh, an attempt to create some kind of idea of what it means to be Canadian and hopefully what it could mean to be Canadian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that comes out on... It's it's on all social media platforms at the CAD story. Uh, it is we have a website at uh, thecanadianstory.ca. Uh, we have a blog on the website that uh, is getting a little bit of traction, which is fun. But yeah, check it out. Uh, you can find it on Spotify, uh, Anchor, and uh, you can also find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, where, wherever you. I think you can find it pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, it's all. We also have a YouTube channel. There you go. You know, uh, Charles Dickens might have a mutual friend, but we have our mutual cousin. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And why don't you tell our listeners about your other projects? Well, I think that um, it's quite likely that many people who listen to this already know about the Liberal Soul, <laughs> considering <laughs> I posted True. twenty episodes on there. But yes, I have this other podcast <laughs> called The Liberal Soul. Which I enjoy doing, and then I actually don't think I've talked about this very much, but I also do a another podcast with some friends, and I'm not the main person, but it's called Nothing to Fear, where we watch horror movies and talk about it. So if you like horror movies, you can check out Nothing to Fear on uh, there. And actually, I've started a radio show here in Nelson. So mm-hmm. if, if you live in the Nelson area or have access to the internet that you can stream. <laughs> um, <laughs> which we're assuming most of you do if you're listening to this. <laughs> I... Uh, on Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific, I have a show on Kootenai Co-op Radio 93.5 in Nelson called Full Spectrum Cinema, where I talk about a movie with another guy named Alex. Uh, and it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. And you can stream that. It's just funny because like a radio show, you have to listen at a specific time. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. Not just you want. Totally so. different. Well, it's kind of funny. We started this a number of years ago, and now it's really branched out into a lot of other things. Yeah, for sure. I guess that's the three-body problem. There we go. This has been another episode <laughs> of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. And may the Trisolarans be with you, David. <laughs> or may you survive them. <laughs> Amen.